Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, the text that we'll be undertaking to consider this morning is verses 18 through 20. Matthew chapter 16 and verses 18 through 20. When you visit the Israel, one of the first things that sort of immediately strikes you is the topography of the land of Israel. Israel is bisected north and south by, by a gash in the earth. It stretches, as I say, north to south, ending at the Dead Sea, or just slightly south of it, and for the Dead Sea, making it one of the, or the lowest land mass below sea level anywhere to be found on the face of the earth. It's actually 1,237 feet below sea level. This is a very deep rip in the surface of the ocean, or of the land, rather. And interestingly, the, uh, what's known as the uh, Jordan Valley Rift, that's what that gash is called, is actually part of an interconnected series of rifts that begin in Syria and travel for 3,700 miles south, ending in Mozambique in southeastern Africa. So it's a very long tear in the, in the, in the surface of the earth. And it's caused the, the, this, uh, both the Jordan Valley Rift and this interconnected series of rifts, it's, it's caused because of the, it's where the two tectonic plates meet. These are the large slabs of, of rock that make up the, the earth's crust. And they kind of float on the, uh, on the molten part of the earth, and, and as they rub and bump against each other, uh, tremendous seismic pressures are developed until eventually there is, a, there is some kind of movement. Either one plate kind of rolls up over the other, or there's a, there's a rumbling that occurs. Uh, here in Southern California, we're pretty familiar with, uh, with that sort of thing. But uh, the result of the release of the tremendous seismic pressure that builds up along the seam between these tectonic plates uh, is that it produces very distinct geological formations. And the uh, Jordan Valley Rift, and indeed that whole interconnected series of rifts, is, is uh, one of those things that can be observed from space as you look down and you can see that long line uh, along the, uh, the face of the earth. And this section, I tell you all of that because I, I think it, it provides an apt metaphor for, for this section of Matthew's gospel. This, uh, this section is a, is a record of, of great seismic activity, uh, of a, be it a different kind, of course. But for, you know, just for the past three years, uh, Jesus has been, has been traveling throughout Israel and he has been preaching and teaching both publicly uh, in, the, in the various uh, wilderness areas as well as in the synagogues. And he has been continually speaking to the people about the coming kingdom and what they need to do to be prepared to enter into Messiah's kingdom. He has presented himself as Messiah, not the forerunner to Messiah, but Messiah himself. And he has, he has evidenced that through the amazing miracles that, that are so frequently a part of this three-year public ministry. 
These miracles are, are really just a foretaste. They're a glimpse of the power of the, of the age to come, the, the power of Messiah's kingdom, what, what it'll be like to live in Messiah's kingdom. And so Jesus has been, as it were, pulling back the veil on a regular basis and allowing people with eyes to see to sort of glimpse into the future. All of this in fulfillment of the ancient prophecies of what it will be in the time of the king. Now for three years he has been doing this and yet the nation has turned a deaf ear. They want no part of their king. They are not interested in a kingdom of righteousness that he has presented. The leadership of the nation has been threatened by this one. And so they have galvanized against him in a, in a bitter hatred that in a mere six months is going to eventuate in them getting him onto a Roman cross and executing him. But Jesus, in this final six months, takes his disciples and he moves away from the crowds. He gets out of Israel. He leaves the land of Israel. He heads to the territory of Philip. This puts him outside of the political reach of, of Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas, who rules over Galilee and has been seeking a, a deadly audience with Jesus. It removes him from the confrontations of the religious leaders of, his peop of the people, those that have made up their mind that this one must go. And so he, he flees, he gets away. And Matthew tells us that, that he heads to the territory of Caesarea Philippi. Kind of an interesting place to go. It is a pagan playground. It is a, it is a center of pagan worship. It is the place where, where the Roman legionnaires would go, to the city of Caesarea Philippi, in order to... to partake of all of the debauchery that is associated with the worship of Pan that is headquartered there in Caesarea Philippi. But Jesus takes his disciples into this area. And, he, and what occurs while he takes them there is, is the most radical transformation, really, since, since he called them three years before. He is, he is going to turn their world upside down. He is going to transform all of their understanding of Messiah. Because it is here for the very first time that he is going to, to openly speak of his rejection, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. And his future plans to do to, to to do something, to build something that has been previously unknown in the Scriptures. Jesus is going to, to build his church. And it is here in this section of Matthew's Gospel at this time, six months to go to the crucifixion, that Jesus begins to, to reveal this to them. And the disciples have trouble processing it at first, to be sure. 
Now the text before us this morning, verses 18 through 20, is one of those battleground texts of the Bible. A battleground text. There are, there are conflicting interpretations about exactly what is being said here. And, and certainly one of the major conflict be, lies between the, the interpretation of the Roman Catholic Church and the interpretation of the, the Protestants, the Reformers, and, and we who are their heirs. For the Roman Catholic Church finds here in this text, verses 18 through, through 20, really the, the justification for the doctrine of, of papal authority and, the, and, and for the beginning of the papacy which they would attribute to Peter as the first pope. Now Protestant scholars rightly reject these unwarranted assumptions but engage themselves in, in a fair uh, a bit of, of difference of opinion as to exactly what is being communicated here. What do the words mean? What did Jesus mean by, by the things that he talks about here? And so as, as I sat in my study uh, working on this and, and preparing this uh, text, I thought, man, there are, there are potholes and ditches all over the place here that I could fall into you. This is a, not a series on Roman Catholic theology, and so we are going to just set it aside. And I will tell you that uh, you have to import the ideas into the text that cannot come from that text. But neither am I going to, to enter into the, the uh, whole multitude of, of varying Protestant interpretations and try to look at each one and explain it to you and tell you what's good about it and, and what's not good about it until we arrive at a, at a final interpretation. I'm not going to do that either. I'm just going to tell you what I think it means. How's that? Okay? I'm, going to, I'm going to tell you what I think it means, and that is the big idea. We're going to try to get to the big idea this morning, and, and the big idea has to remain in the flow and the context of, of the narrative as, as Matthew is unfolding it. And I, and I think the answer is actually right here in that context. And in the flow of the gospel, this, this, is, a, this is a seismic shift a seismic shift. This is, this is going to revolutionize the disciples. It's going to change the entire course of their lives. And it changes the entire course of our lives, too. So this is an important, important text. Let me take up the reading in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, <clears throat> who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others uh, Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was 
the Christ. Our focus is verses 18 to 20 this morning, and in these verses, there are three keys for understanding the passage in light of our present situation as followers of Jesus Christ. Three keys here for us. The first is in verse 18, and it is simply this. The the church belongs to Jesus. The first key to interpreting this and understanding this passage is is the truth that the key, or the church rather, belongs to Jesus. Jesus says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now Jesus has been uh, questioning his disciples here back in verse 13. We looked at this last week. He's been, he's been continually questioning them as they've, they've been moving about the territory of the district of, of Caesarea Philippi as to what his identity is. He's been, been taking time away to be alone to pray, we're told by Luke. And then during that time, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to, to figure out that the disciples have, have no doubt been talking to one another about how to answer his question, the question that he continually puts to them. Eventually, they, they arrive at their consensus answer, and Peter, acting as their, the spokesman for the group, responds to Jesus' question when he, when he says, but who do you say that I am, with the most amazing declaration in verse 16. Jesus is the Messiah, Israel's God in human flesh. And Jesus says that the insight, Peter, that, that you have for this, and, and Peter, and speaking through Peter to the disciples, so to all of them, the insight that you have to this as to the nature and, and the ministry and the person of who I am is beyond what anyone could figure out in their own human intelligence. This is a direct gift of God the Father. This is the revelation of God the Father himself to you. You could not have figured it out on your own. God has revealed it to you. Now, in response uh, to this, this great confession of faith here, Jesus turns in verse 17, and he, and he begins to, to address Peter individually. The Greek text uh, uh, makes this pr- very, very clear in that the, the, the pronouns that are used in verse 15 is a, a second-person plural pronoun, just kind of y'all if, if we came from south of the Mason-Dixon line. And it's speaking to all of the disciples who y'all say that I am. And in verse 18, it's a single, uh, singular you. Who do you, Peter, say that I am? So Jesus turns specifically to Peter and begins to address him as an individual, no longer speaking to Peter and through Peter to the group. Now he does this in, uh, in order to accomplish a couple of are very significant things. One is that he, he wants to, to pick up on what Peter has just articulated, just vocalized, and, and the significance of that declaration. He also is going to, to prophesy about Peter and, and a future role that Peter will play in the new entity that Jesus is about to, to bring into the world called the church. So Peter is very significant in this passage, and there is no uh, avoiding that reality. And in fact, we wouldn't want to. 
Now, the way Jesus uh, takes this, approaches this in verse 18 is, uh, is he tells a pun. He uses a pun. And the, and the pun is, is, is built upon uh, Peter's name, the name that Jesus had actually given to him back in uh, John chapter 1, I believe it's verse 42. And in the Greek, the pun, the pun works uh, in the English not so much, but, but literally what uh, Jesus says to him when he says, uh, you are Peter, the word is Petros, it means stone. So he says, uh, you are Petros, a stone, and upon this Petra, which is a large rock, basically, or, or, uh, or slab of rock, upon this Petra, I will build my church. So you can see the pun that is, that is uh, built out of Peter's name. And he says, upon this Petra, upon this, this uh, rock, this large rock, and we, and we notice uh, here that there's the demonstrative adjective this, right? Upon this rock. He doesn't say, and, and you are Petros, and upon you I will build my church. But he says, upon this rock. What rock? What is, what is the antecedent to the this? What is he referring back to? And I think contextually, you've got to find the answer in verse 16. I think what he is, what he is pointing Two is the confession that Peter has made in verse 16. That is the, that is the Petra, that is the large rock, that is the, that is the slab of bedrock upon which Jesus will build his church. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, the, the word Petra is used again, and, and it's used in a very similar kind of way. That's, you know, the man, uh, one man builds his house upon the rock, the Petra. Another man builds his house upon the sand, right? And in the context there in Matthew chapter 7, it is absolutely indisputable that the Petra is the teachings of Jesus. That is the rock on which the man is to build his house. And I think that's basically the idea here, is that the Petra is, is this rock of truth. This amazing confession that Peter has made, not by his own brilliance, not by his own insight, but by the revelation of God the Father. It is this great truth that Jesus is the second person of the triune Godhead, who in human flesh is Savior and King. That's what's bound up in Peter's confession in verse 16. And it is on that reality that could only come by the Father himself making it known that Jesus says, I will build my church. Now the word church here in verse 18, uh, ekklesia is the Greek word. It's interesting in the, in the sense, and I think instructive, that it is uh, not found in any other gospel and only in the gospel of Matthew and only here or the first time here in the gospel of Matthew and then again in chapter 18 and verse 17. And it is introduced here, as you see with a future verb, on this rock, on this Petra, on the confession of the reality of the identity of Jesus, he says, I will build, future tense, my church. I will build my church. Now, the, the word, we translate it church, the word ecclesia, it was a, a word that was known in those days. It's not like a brand new word and they would all scratch their head and say, what is all that about? 
The word simply means an assembly of people, a, a group called together for a purpose. Not unfamiliar at all to the Jews of that day. In fact, there are places in the Old Testament where in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word ecclesia is used to refer to Israel themselves. Furthermore, in the book of Acts, uh, we notice in Acts chapter 19 and verse 32, where it speaks of the, of the gathering of a crowd in Ephesus, there it is also called the ecclesia, that it's not an essentially religious word. Just a word that means assembly. But it's, it's transformed as the, as the New Testament uh, develops into, into a word that is, that is the vast majority of its uses. It speaks to this entity which is unknown in the Old Testament, revealed only in the New Testament, and revealed only in the New Testament following Jesus' rejection by the nation of Israel when he has presented to himself to them fully. It is clear by this time that they want nothing to do with their Messiah. And it is following that clear rejection when Jesus leaves the land of Israel that he for the first time indicates both his, or explicitly states, both his impending uh, crucifixion and resurrection and his future plans to build something new, something called the church. The Apostle Paul says that this church is a mystery, a mystery. That is, it was something unknown previously, but has now been revealed. And that's exactly what he says in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 5, referring to the church. He says, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Unknown in the Old Testament, only known in the New Testament, following the rejection of Jesus, where then it begins to, to take front and center and to occupy, really, the majority of the text of the New Testament. I will build my church, he says. And he says this church uh, cannot be or will not be overcome by the gates of Hades. And there's a lot of ink that's been spilled about all of this. But let me just boil it down for you. Uh, in a, to a Jewish mind at that time, the, 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 the pretty clear understanding of the gates of Hades is a reference to death. I won't take the time to prove it all to you, but believe me, it's there. It's a reference to death. And basically what he is saying is, I will build my church and death will not overcome it or contain it. Death will not overcome the church. Death will not contain the church. And the reason that is true is because Jesus will conquer death. In verse 21, in the same context, it says, From that time he began to show his disciples that he must be killed and raised up on the third day. That is, that he himself will conquer death. Thus, death cannot overcome or contain his church. Jesus has conquered death. And all his people, united to him by faith, conquered death through him. And thus the church is not subject to the curse of death. Now, what are the implications of all of this? What are the implications of all of this? Well, there are many. <laughs> there are many. But let me, let me give you a few. 
Just a few things to think about in the the reality of all of this. Number one, I think for me, is is that the church has Jesus' assurance that it will thrive. Isn't that pretty amazing? I will build my church, and death, the greatest enemy, cannot contain it and cannot overcome it. And that's not, that cannot be said of any other Christian organization or institution. Did you ever think about that? There are a lot of good things that people do for Jesus, do for the, for the advancement of the gospel. All kinds of organizations are formed, but none of them can claim this promise of Christ, which is that the church will never pass out of existence. Death will never overcome it. And what that, what that means, I think, practically speaking, is, is that our, when we talk about our allegiances, the first allegiance needs to be to the church. This is what God has established through Christ. This is what Christ says he's building. And so for you and I, as followers of Christ, we have many things that tug and pull at us, many things for which we give our allegiance, but our first and foremost allegiance needs to be in line with the priorities of God, and the priority of God is the church. It is the church. Now granted, he is is speaking of what's called the universal church, the invisible church. But the universal church and the invisible church is embodied in a local church. In fact, by and far, the vast majority of references to the church in the New Testament speak not of the universal church, but speak of a local church. So I don't think it's much of a stretch at all to say that the local church is a priority of Christ and thus should be a priority of me, or of mine. First implication. Secondly, Jesus is personally building the church. He is personally building the church. And and he is doing so as he adds the living stones who have been purchased by his precious blood. 1 Peter 2.5, Acts chapter 20, verse 28. What that means is, is that Jesus is active in the church. And he's active among his churches. And in fact, you you read the book of Revelation and you get to chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation and we see exactly that. We We see the glorified Jesus walking among his churches, actively involved, examining his churches and 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 chastising them where need be and encouraging them where there need be. But he is actively involved in his church. And that means, beloved, he is actively involved in this church. Jesus is actively involved in Foothill Bible Church. Third, third implication, I think it's kind of plain here, is that the church belongs to Jesus, not us. I will build my church. The church belongs to Christ, not to any man and not to a group of men. It belongs to Christ. What that means is that the organization of the church, the operation of the church, the mission of the church, the methods of the church need to be Excuse me, need to be those that are prescribed by its living Lord. People have asked me about uh, denominations. You're a non-denominational church. Yes, we're a non-denominational church. Well, well, well then uh, what is the authority structure in the church? Who, you know, who, who's over the church? And the answer is, over the church is Christ, the Lord of the church. We all submit to him, all of us. He sets 
the direction for the church, not people. So the first key to come out of this passage is that the church belongs to Jesus. Secondly, verse 19, Scripture is our authority. Scripture is our authority. And by the way, if we, if we say that Jesus is the Lord of the church, right, and he, he prescribes the church and its operations and, and how it's supposed to do and where it's supposed to go and what, you know, all of those sorts of things, how do, how do people know what, what Jesus wants? The answer is that it has been revealed to us in the Word of God, the Word of God. And so that leads us naturally into this, to this next observation here in verse 19, and that is that Scripture is our authority. Jesus, speaking to Peter, says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now notice Jesus is promising Peter something here, and he's, he's again promising it in a future tense. I will give you, not I, gave, I just gave you or I gave you in the past, I will give you in the future keys of the kingdom of heaven. And what Jesus is saying is, yeah, keys represent authority here, and what Jesus is saying to, to Peter is, is, I will give you authority relative to the kingdom of heaven. I will give you authority relative to the kingdom of heaven. Now, entrance into the kingdom of heaven in the time of the church, right? I will build my church. It's still future. I will give you the keys. It's still future. You get them both at the same time. When the church comes, you get the keys at the same time. And in this day and age in which you and I live, the day and age of the church, entrance into Messiah's kingdom comes via membership in the church, the universal church, the body of Christ. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13 makes that clear. So what Jesus is promising to Peter here is that there will be a certain authority that Peter will have to exercise when the church comes into existence. Specifically, Peter will have the authority to pronounce a binding or a loosing of people in conformity with the decision of God previously made in heaven. You see it there. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. It's not that, that Peter has an authority to bind people and then heaven says, okay, you, that's your decision, then we'll go with it. Okay, That's not what it's saying at all. What it's saying is that what heaven has decided in the loosening or the binding, Peter, when he exercises his authority, it will be in conformity with the decision in heaven. But, but what does it mean exactly? I mean, what does it mean to, to bind and to loose? What does that mean? And, and how does that relate to the power of the keys? And believe me, um, many forests have been cut down uh, and paper made and wasted uh, talking about this. 
But I think, uh, think uh, D.A. Carson, actually, in his commentary on Matthew, uh, really kind of hits the nail on the head. He makes, a, he makes a very, very helpful and incisive observation with regard to the question here. And what he does is, is he points the reader to uh, Luke chapter 11 and verse 52. You don't need to turn there. Okay, I think I've got it for you. Hopefully, yeah, there we go. Where Jesus is speaking to the leadership of Israel, specifically to the Pharisees and, and, the, well, and the scribes. And he says, woe to you, lawyers, woe to you, scribes, for you have taken away the key of knowledge, and you yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. Jesus is denouncing the, the leadership of Israel for, for refusing the truth about who he is and through their teaching, uh, making it impossible for others to hear that truth, to believe that truth, and to enter themselves. In other words, they, they, have, they have bound up people through their false teaching. They have bound them up. They, they have cut them off from entrance into the kingdom of God. And I think that's exactly what, what Jesus is, is talking about here. Peter has correctly identified Jesus. He has spoken this, uh, this amazing confession of orthodoxy of, about Jesus, a, a confession that he could not have figured out on his own, a confession that only could have come through the revelation of the Father himself, according to verse 17. A revelation that opens the kingdom and closes the kingdom based on one's response to that revelation. Said another way, the proclamation of the gospel loosens and binds. Loosens and binds. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is saying to Peter. He's saying, Peter, I will give you the authority to loose and bind based upon the proclamation of the great confession you have just verbalized. We see the examples of this historically as the, as the book of Acts begins to play out, right? Peter is in, is in the position of leadership among the, the apostolic band. And, and he's handling the keys as he proclaims the truth about Christ. First to the Jews in Acts chapter 2, following Pentecost, right? Where he proclaims to them the, the proper understanding and explanation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah, God's son. And the spirit moves and 3,000 people, 3,000 Jews are saved that day. As the book of Acts continues to progress, what we see is Peter is the one who first proclaims the truth to the Gentiles as well in Acts chapter 10 in the person of Cornelius, the Roman centurion. So in the early chapters of, of the book of Acts, what we see is Peter's exercise of the keys to the kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is rooted in this great confession in chapters, uh, verse 16, in its most compact form, it is, of course, elaborated as the book of Acts unfolds. That's the loosening. What are the binding? It's simply this. Those who refuse to heed the message of life are bound in their sin. 
You see the illustration of that in Acts chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, where Peter says, He, that is Christ, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given upon men by which we must be saved. Listen, if you refuse the truth about the identity of Jesus Christ, there is no redemption. You are bound in your sin. You are bound in your sin. Beloved, the power of the keys does not lie in the individual. It lies in the, in the authority to preach the message. It lies in the authority to preach the message. And Jesus chose Peter to be his first and primary spokesman of that message. But the reality of the matter is, from the book of Acts, it's very, very clear that all the apostles possess the keys. By the time of the book of Acts begins to, to play out, they all possess the keys. And in fact, Jesus says in John chapter 20 and verse 23 that they all have that power. And Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 1.21 that specifically that it, is, that it is the power of the message, the foolishness of the message preached, it is the gospel that has the power to save and when it's rejected, the, the power to bind. So what are the implications? What are the implications of all of this? I think it's simply this. That we, we as the church of Jesus Christ, acting in submission to and conformity with the written word of these apostles, in other words, the scriptures, right, the New Testament, we also have access to the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And we are able also, by pronouncing the truth about Christ, able to bind and loosen people. That is, we are, we are able to, to proclaim a message that is in accordance with what God has already determined in heaven. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Reject the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll remain dead in your sin. This is what God has decided. This is how the world works. There is no other way. There is no other path. There is no other entrance into the kingdom. When we proclaim the gospel, we loose people. And sadly, when we proclaim the gospel and it's rejected, we bind people. We can say to them with the authority of the word of God, if you refuse the gospel message, you remain in your sin and under the condemnation of God. In both cases, we are simply saying what heaven has already said. Has already said. It is not my opinion. It is not your opinion. It is the authority of the word of God. And that takes us to the third key. The first key is that the church belongs to Jesus. The, the second key is that the scripture is our authority. 
The third key to this text is in verse 20, and it's simply this, the time is now. The time is now. Then Jesus warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. You ought to sit up when you're reading this and take notice. All along, Jesus has been proclaiming himself to be the Christ by both word and deed. He has sent out his apostles two by two throughout Galilee to proclaim the reality of this. And now he warns them, mums the word. Do not say anything. Do not tell anyone that I am the Messiah. What? What's going on there? I'm glad you asked. I'll tell you. He has been rejected by the nation. He has been rejected by the nation. He has been rejected by, by the leadership of the nation. He has withdrawn from his people. There will only be intermittent contact over the next six months until his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He has withdrawn. And he is now revealing to his disciples new truth. New truth that, that he will build his church. In chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Do not throw your pearls before what? Swine. Because when they reject them, they will turn and tear you up. The nation has proved themselves to be the equivalent of, slime, of swine. Jesus is not going to give them any more revelation. They have had more than enough. More than enough. He has withdrawn from them. It is judicial. It is judgmental, to be sure. It's also, I think, a, a an indication of the mercy and grace of God because if he were to continue to give them further revelation about who he is, which they would reject as well, it would only increase their condemnation. But he's not going to give any more revelation. And it's only for his disciples. Anything else will only further inflame the situation. And so he tells them to keep it to themselves. But not forever. Keep it to yourself. Do not tell anyone that I am the Messiah. For how long? Until after the resurrection. Until after the resurrection. After the resurrection, Jesus then says to go into all the world and do what? Make disciples. Right? Baptizing the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and, and teaching them to observe all things that I have taught you. Listen, for now, keep it under your hat. But in, but in six months, let it rip. Give it to everybody. Don't hold back from anyone. Declare it from, from the heights of the city. Boldly stand in the, in the presence of the leadership of the nation that, that will crucify me and declare to them that there is salvation in no other name. Go to the ends of the earth and declare the reality that I am the Messiah, the Son of the living God. 
And there is salvation in no one else. Beloved, which side of the resurrection do you and I live on? Do we live on the quiet side or the vocal side? How often we pretend like we live on the quiet side, right? How often we act like this is a secret we need to hang on to. When in reality, this is the glorious proclamation that we must make. We must make. Now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. Proclaim it. Let's pray. Our Father, as we consider these verses and the the incredible statements that are made here and the implications of them, we're, we're jumping in the deep end of the pool, to be sure. And yet there is a, there is a simple message here. There is, a, there is a thread of continuity here that takes us through this chapter and, and sort of un, unkinks it for us. And it is simply this, that the bold declaration of the identity of the Messiah revealed only by you, first to the apostles, and then to us through their word, is something we need to proclaim. For there is salvation in no other name, because there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Oh, Father, may you make us bold to believe that truth, and may you help us to be loving that we might share it with others. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.